0: Typically, celebrations are celebratory, right? A celebration is something good, it's positive, it's awesome, it's like a party. We want to have celebrations. We want enthusiasm, we want excitement. But celebrations aren't so exciting and they aren't so fun and we don't look forward to them when? When something's wrong in our life, when we don't feel like celebrating, when circumstances are bad. The last place I want to go to is a party. I don't want to go to a celebration. I don't want to go to a festival. If my health is bad or my emotions are bad or something has happened that's a crisis, the last place on earth I want to be is where there are a bunch of happy people celebrating, right? Well, in John chapter 7, we, we have what looks like or should be frustration, bad circumstances, crisis, um, coming face to face and, and coming becoming like oil and water with one of Israel's greatest celebrations. So it's party atmosphere, it's awesome, celebrate, wonderful, praise, party, kids are excited, parents are excited, families are excited, neighbors are excited, and things are going worse than ever for Jesus. At least that's how it appears But as you might anticipate, and I'm asking you to anticipate, things are not always the way they appear when it comes to Jesus. What we think would be frustrating will turn out to not be so frustrating because he's the Savior who's on mission, who's on a mission, the mission, and everything is happening according to plan. So as we get ready to look at the the text, let's consider the festival It is the festival, festival, the celebration that's called tabernacles or it's called the feast or the celebration of booths, okay? A tabernacle is a tent, a booth is a tent. So it's the celebration of tents, okay? And if you're a kid, that sounds exciting, right? Who loves as a kid, man, I love to go in the tent, in the backyard in the tent, at the campground in the tent. It's awesome. The feast of tents, Well, I'm being a little bit silly, but actually this would have been something that kids would have liked. This is a time when the family would spend a whole week in a makeshift kind of hut made of branches and different things. And they would remember, it's designed to remember God's faithfulness, God's provision as he led Israel, his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. That's something to celebrate, out of bondage. They're led out and God provides for them even during their wilderness wanderings when they're in tents, okay? So you might not want to be in a tent if you have to be in a tent, but these are people who weren't homeless. These are people like you. These are people who have houses and they like to go act like they don't have houses sometimes, which is what camping is. It's terrible. Anyway. <laughs> but it's only for a week, right? And so this is this is exciting and not only Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Tents, Feast of Booths, Celebration of Tabernacles, it comes in the fall, it comes after the harvest. So there's not only plenty of food to be had, you're not busy rationing because it's winter time. It's fresh food. Okay, It's not what's been preserved or whatever. Fresh food, plenty of food. It's kind of a, a week away where you're celebrating this and you want to go to Jerusalem. It's so popular that the Jews started calling it the feast. Okay, It is the celebration of all celebrations. It is exciting. It is wonderful. Oh, and there's even a little bit more. There are passages... Like in Zechariah, that equate this feast, this festival, with the return of Jesus. So it's eschatological, thinking about the end, anticipating not only what God had done, but what God would do. And in the Zechariah text, one day, everyone, not just the Israelites, will believe that Yahweh, the one true living God, is the one true living God. So they're anticipating, they're excited about that as well. It's a wonderful time. I'm getting so excited about it that I skip the text. Leviticus 23 tells us, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the uh, produce of the land, see, it's, it's harvest, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. You shall rejoice. This is a good thing. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths. When I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Great, awesome, wonderful celebration, looking to the future. And in John chapter 7, we have Jesus. In John chapter 6, we heard of massive defections. Disciples not being disciples anymore. Jesus had become very popular. And now, many of the disciples don't follow anymore. Not only that, in chapter 6, we hear that even one of the inner circle 12 is going to deny him. Not only that, he's been opposed in Judea. He's been opposed in Galilee. He's been opposed by his family. And we're going to hear here again. We're going to see again. His brothers aren't believing in him. Circumstantially, things are. Things have never been worse. But what's so interesting, and we'll end on this as we look after we're all done, Feast, festival, anticipation, wonderful. It's actually a perfect match because this is all according to plan because Jesus actually is the one who is the fulfillment of that anticipation festival feast. Ultimately, it's pointing to Him according to plan. So let's go ahead and jump in Fasten your seatbelts if you would, Trade tables up. I thought I was going to do 24 verses and then I did the whole chapter because it all fits together. So we're going to go fast, okay? So here we go. Verse 1, after this Jesus went about in Galilee, after the bad stuff in chapter 6, not that it was all bad, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So that's how bad things are. Low point from chapter 6. Verse 2 says, Now the Jews' the, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Contrast right there. That's where I got that introduction. They're trying to kill him. We came off chapter 6. And it's festival feast. The feast time. Oil, water, strange. Verse 3. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5 is going to tell us they, they say these things in unbelief. But his brothers say to him, hey, you should go to Judea and all these things you're saying you're doing, whether they've seen them or not, whether they believe in him or not, they don't believe actually, you should... This is not the stuff you hide if you want to be famous. Go where all the people are. Oh, and by the way, it would really be helpful because they're all in a good mood. Right? This is exciting. This would be a wonderful time to go and get your ministry re-revved up, if you will. Because it's not going so well. Verse 5 says, For not even his brothers believed in him. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. I think the reason he's saying that, by the way, is because they're unbelievers and they're part of the world. The world doesn't hate its own. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. There's a lot going on there the world's works are evil. Oh, by the way, they're having a celebration in the name of God. Externally, they're obeying God and he's saying their works are evil. Oh, and in case you're kind of slow on the uptake like I am sometimes, he's insulting his brothers too. He's in effect saying, your works are evil as well. Oh, pretty, pretty subtle, I guess, but he's not complimenting them. little bit of application sprinkled in. Remember this the next time people you know are opposing the historical Jesus. There's a reason why we don't like Jesus. Because when we're next to Jesus, if you will, it exposes our works as being evil. Okay? Let's go to verse 8. You go up to the feast, he says. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. I wrote in my margin in more ways than they realize, right? It's all about timing. It's all about what he's been doing. He's been talking this way since chapter 2. My time has not yet fully come. Verse 9 says, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. It's their time to go to Jerusalem. They'll be accepted. He won't be They're part of the unbelieving system. He's not. Verse 10 says, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Jesus is going to do more and more things in private. He's going to carry the burden alone. It's going to be him, right? He's the only one who's the Savior. It's dangerous to go alone. You don't travel alone. You go with the caravan. He's going alone. He doesn't want the attention drawn to him at the wrong time and the wrong way. Verse 11 says, The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? 12 says, And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. I wrote in my margin, Punishable by stoning. Deuteronomy 13. That's what that means. Then verse 13 says, Yet for fear of the Jews... In this context, it would be the Jewish leaders. No one spoke openly of him. So everybody's talking. I think he's a good guy. I think he's a bad guy. I like him. I don't like him. But don't say it very loud because we don't want to be in trouble with the leadership. But everybody's talking. There's the much muttering going on. 14 says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, probably in general now, this could be leaders, this could be lay people, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? He sounds like he's formally trained. It wasn't that all the people were illiterate then. No, actually, literacy rates would be high. They would know how to read, know how to write know basic things about Scripture because they memorized tons of Scripture, the Jews did. But what's different here is, not that they're all uneducated, but he's formally trained. He sounds like one of the trained rabbis. Oh no, as we're going to see, he sounds better than any of them. What's the deal? How could this possibly be? They, they, they They don't know everything, but they know enough to know that he didn't go to their schools. He's an expert my mind cross-references to Matthew chapter 7 where they were in awe of Jesus' teaching. Why? Because he spoke as one having authority. See, he wasn't always quoting all the other rabbis according to the sacred tradition. Jesus is just teaching the text, if you will, in a way that everyone goes, Oh, yeah, it's right there. Sort of like expository preaching at its best, and you go, yep, yeah, that's pretty basic." You didn't have to quote all these other people to side with them. It's just as clear as could be. But it would be as clear as, as clear as, as clear, as, as, clear as, as clear. I can't even talk as be with Jesus. You know what I mean? It doesn't get any better. But sixteen says, "So Jesus answered them. They're not asking him, but he's." Answering them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. See, my authority isn't in Rabbi so-and-so who's related to Rabbi so-and-so, who's related to Rabbi so-and-so. And and when you hear what he says, it looks nothing like the text. My authority, because authority is always the issue, It's not me or my relatives. My authority comes from God. In chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus says, I speak just as the Father taught me. You just want to be a fly on the wall for this kind of stuff. Verse 17 says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So if if you... You see what he's doing, right? If I'm legitimate and you're legitimate, you'll hear me as legitimate. It's a test. 18 says, The one who speaks on his own authority... Jesus could be holding up a mirror right now, by the way. The one who speaks on his own authority, Jewish rabbi teachers, quoting rabbi so-and-so, who's brother to rabbi so-and-so, who's brother to rabbi so-and-so. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. New American Standard translates that last part, there is no unrighteousness. And literally that would be what it is. There's a subtle indictment and maybe it's not so subtle. Maybe it's subtle to us. I do love that in verse 18. That's why I brought out the way the New American Standard translates it, that Greek word, adikia, non-righteousness. In Him, there is no falsehood. In Him, there is no unrighteousness. I think that's probably more than just a generic statement. In Him, in Jesus, there is no unrighteousness. Remember, Psalm 14 says, that isn't true of anybody. Because no one is righteous. Just like... Our New Testament says that. Their Old Testament said that. And here Jesus speaking of himself and he's saying, I'm the exception. This is why in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he is called Jesus Christ, the righteous. No one is in that category. Righteous is a law word. It's always in relationship to God's law. I and I alone not only can teach it like you've never heard before, I keep it. I obey it. It's exceptional. So if you want to write in your ESV margin, I know you think it's the elect elect standard version, um, but if you want to write in the margin to get a little more literal, adikia, no unrighteousness. How about verse 19? Has not Moses given you the law? Oh, yes, we're prideful. We're disciples of Moses. 9.28 says, We are disciples of Moses. Yet none of you keeps the law. See, I wasn't playing word games when I was telling you to see 18 the way you saw it because in context, that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? (laughs) To borrow from verse 18, you are unrighteous. There's no unrighteousness in me, but you are unrighteous. There's a problem. You not only don't know how to teach the Bible, you don't do what it says. He is dressing them down. You're going to kill me for no reason and I'm without unrighteousness? You have no basis for that. You all should be dead. Wow! It reminds me of—is it Pilate that says of Jesus, "I find no evil in him"? That's right. Luke twenty-three, twenty-two. What evil has he done? Huh? Couldn't be said about anybody else if you take that at face value. This is exciting. Lots of theology here. Lots of things to learn about God and about Christ and about these people doing external right things that even God commands and Jesus calling them evil. Verse 20 says, The crowd answered, You have a demon! Who is seeking to kill you? Well, we're going to learn that they are seeking to kill him. They've been talking about it and they're going to talk about it. They for sure are seeking to kill him. But what do you do when you don't have a good argument? You do emotion. Right? You do name-calling. Just like we hear in politics, right? We're trying to have an argument about this or that. And what is a good argument? What's a bad argument? You've got a demon! Well, that pretty much settles the argument. <laughs> They're not being reasonable, not being rational. This is an emotional response, name calling irrationality. It's something we probably all do at times. Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Thinking back, to, we're going to see for sure he's meaning back to chapter 5 with the, the healing of the lame man, because that was so scandalous because it was on Shabbat, it was on Sabbath, and you can't work on Sabbath, and healing someone and having him carry his mat and all this kind of stuff. He, he's referring to that. I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Verse 22 not all marveling in a great way either. Verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. We can go back to Abraham in Genesis 17. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So an eight-day-old male, by law, is to be circumcised. Leviticus 12, verse 3, I believe it is. So he, he, he's reasoning with them. Okay? You did name-calling, and I'm going to do logic. Law-logic if on, verse 23, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. See, we have two laws in apparent conflict, right? You do it after eight days, that's the law of Moses. But it's Sabbath and you can't work and you know, the priest picking up the exacto knife or whatever, the flint or whatever it was, that's working according to the way they quoted Rabbi so-and-so's brother's rabbi who's a brother who's a rabbi and According to sacred tradition, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? You are ridiculous. And your understanding and application of Scripture is ridiculous, and it's ridiculously inconsistent. 24 says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right, or literally righteous judgment. I wrote down, naive, simplistic, reductionistic, cherry picking that plays fast and loose with the Bible. Seems to be what's happening. And Jesus is saying... I think that's what he means when he's saying, don't judge by appearances. You've got to think this through, and God's not contradicting Himself, and you use clear headed, clear thinking, and oh, by the way, you guys do on some occasions, and then when it comes to me, you don't. I feel like we should come up for air. There's a lot happening. But if we stop here, we we don't catch the whole drift. We don't catch the whole sense of the passage. So we've got to keep going. Verse 25 says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that he is the Christ? What's going on with the leaders? This doesn't seem to make sense. What's happening here? Do they actually believe he's the Christ? Or do they not believe he's the Christ? They said he's not the Christ, but they want to kill him. And this is is baffling. What's your Twitter feed say? (laughs) Probably not that. So they answer their own question with a strong negative, though. They don't think too longly about it for too too long. Look at 27. But we know where this man, commentators who are Greek language experts say, this man probably has disdain. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Really. Really. Let's keep going. 28, so Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, in a sense, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Now, so far, Jesus is saying, you know where I come from, and they actually don't really know where he comes from, but they know he's come from Galilee, at least then. So Jesus is going with him on that, but Jesus, instead of arguing about that at this point in time, picks up the other issue, and that's, I've I've come from God. Ultimately. He who sent me is true. Remember, he kept doing that kind of thing, saying that kind of thing in chapter six. And him you do not know. Do think about the fact that Jesus is in the temple where they are there to celebrate and have this huge festival, the festival celebrating the one true God. Again, Yahweh, the self-existent One who has been faithful to His promises and He delivered His people. He's the great delivering God who promises an ultimate deliver. They're in the temple where true worship can happen. And Jesus says, You don't know God. It is... Dicey. Offensive. How about 29? I know him. Just makes me think. What's this quest we're on, if you will? It's to know God. Jesus says, I know Him. You want to know how you know God? You know God through Christ. It takes me back to chapter 1, right? No one has seen God. Jesus has come and Jesus has interpreted God for us. He's explained God for us so that we can know God. How could He do that? Because He was with Him. He came here to make Him known. He says, you don't know God. I know God. I say to you, you want to know God? You better listen to Jesus. I had better listen to Jesus. It's just baffling to the mind that they could be this committed to the right book, right place, right actions, right festival, and Jesus looks them in the eye and says, you don't know God. I mean, salvation, Jesus said in chapter 4, is of the Jews. I mean, he's not saying that everything about them is wrong. He's affirming their book. He's affirming their place. He's affirming their history. Those are all right things. But you can have the right things. Imagine if you don't have the right things. That would be like the Samaritan woman. He's saying the Jews have the right things. But you can have the right connections and the right things and have Jesus say to you, you don't know God but I know him. So there's the negative and there's also the positive, right? For us, we say, I want to know God and I want to know God. The way to know God is through his only son. So all of this is a negative time, but let's at least see that goodness for what it is. 29, I know him for I come from him and he sent me so they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We keep seeing that, and it's awesome. It's sovereign design. It's everything happening according to plan. He's going to lay down his life. No one's going to take it from him. He's the Savior we trust in. 31 says, yet many of the people believed in him. I just have a smile on my face, right? After chapter 6, and, and after all of this stuff that's going on and after all the controversy and all the conflicts and the brothers saying, Hey, you need to have a different marketing plan, maybe. Do this. This'll work. Jesus does like, you know, the opposite kind of thing. He just insults everybody, but he speaks the truth in what happens and many people believe in him. Jesus is not frustrated. When we started, we talked about festival. When you don't like a festival, when you don't like a celebration is when you're frustrated. When things aren't going well and things aren't the way you want them to be. And Jesus isn't frustrated. He's telling the truth about false religion, about God, about himself. And guess what happens when that happens? People believe This reminds me of the theology Jesus taught us in chapter 6. How do people come? Because of the Father's work. Right? How about this? Jesus believes what he teaches. (laughs) And his methodology matches his theology. Just saying that's something good for us to learn. How do people come to faith? Well, we learned about that in chapter 6. And boy, I would sure think nobody would come to faith in light of what he's doing here. He's going to get, you know, D-minuses in evangelism class at Bible college. And yet he's a success. People are believing. It's awesome. Okay, let's move on. They said, this is 31. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. 34, you will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. A couple things. You're going to arrest me. They are going to in time. But what is he saying? I'll be leaving. They are going to arrest him. He says, I'm leaving. How do you do that? We know, but still, it's meant for us to go. Huh. In charge. Your shackles can't stop me crucifixion can't stop me where I'm going and I am going I'll be leaving can't stop me absolutely can't stop me now the other thing that he's saying secondly and where I'm going you can't come he's going to resurrect and ascend and he's going to go to heaven and here are these committed religious leaders who have the right book right place right history Right vocabulary and he says, you can't come. Because they're not going to the one who knows him. Truthful, harsh, but truthful. You will not be going to the father. Okay, verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? That we will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, those living outside of Israel? proselytites. How about verse 36? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? He's delusional. They're delusional. 37. 37 and 38, we did for scripture reading and for good reason. How about this? On the last day of the feast, the great day, culmination, right? It's all been building up to this. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Wow, we've heard something like that before in chapter 4. Whoever believes in me, so that's what he means by drinking. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow Rivers of living water, life. Believe in me for life, for abundance, for fulfillment, for never having any more needs. This is awesome. This is awesome, just on its face, but it's awesomer, if you will, if we know a little bit more about the festival. Now we don't. Before we even get there, water is important in middle east wars are fought over water even today water means life sustenance okay streams of, of flowing water. Oh, that's even better because it hasn't been you know, boxed up in, in the cistern and we have to wait and boil it because it's late in the season and we haven't had rain for a long time. No, this is abundance. This is great. This is flowing water, fresh water, great tasteful water, life. If we have water, we have life. So we can capture all that. But if we know a little bit about the history of the Feast of Tabernacles... Water was strategic every day. Water was a big deal. Water was a big deal at the end. I don't want to bore you to tears, but two helpful quotes that might help us understand. Every day during tabernacles preached, marched in solemn procession from the pool of Shalom to the temple and poured out water at the base of the altar. The seventh day of the festival, the last day proper, was marked by a special water-pouring rite and light ceremony. Water, water, water. Okay, another quote. Tabernacles was associated with adequate rainfall, Zechariah fourteen sixteen to 17. And this passage, because you have harvest, right? And you're not going to have harvest if you don't have the good rainfall. And this passage was read on the first day of the feast according to the liturgy. Another Old Testament passage associated with the feast was Isaiah 12.3. I'm quoting now, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. End quote. The water rite, though not prescribed in the Old Testament, was firmly in place well before the first century A.D. The festival seems to speak of the joyful restoration of Israel and the ingathering of the nations. I actually know that because of what's said in Zechariah. Here, Jesus presents himself as God's agent to make these end time events a reality. It's not that they've happened yet, but he's the one who's going to make them happen, okay? is the idea. Water, 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 all the stuff with water. We wouldn't have to hear those quotes to know those things in general, but it's helpful historically. And Jesus says, oh, water? Come to me. But it's better. Just like he was saying in chapter four. Then verse 39, as we wrap this up, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. It's interesting, it's already talking about his glorification, his work being done. He's not saying that the Spirit didn't exist. He's not saying the Spirit didn't work at all. You all only have to remember back to chapter 3, that the Spirit regenerates, Even Nicodemus, the Old Testament saint, was supposed to know that the Spirit regenerates. But the Spirit is talked about in the Old Testament as coming in a new, extraordinary way, like in Jeremiah 31 with the New Covenant. I think that's probably what he's getting at here. There's something unique and special, and you don't have New Covenant until you have Christ's work all done. If you want to learn about that, you can read Jeremiah 31 and the following text. Okay, let's keep going. 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Deuteronomy 18 talks about a prophet who would come. Some thought the prophet and Messiah were separate, like these people thought that. Not true, but look at verse 41. Others said, This is the Christ, the Messiah. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? The implied answer is, No, he's not going to come from Galilee. We know our Bibles. 42. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? What's the answer to that, class? Yes, absolutely. That's where he was born. That's why he was born there. Matthew chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. Then verse 43 of our text says, So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Awesome. Not the most significant verse in our text, the, the, the flowing water would be, but still, that one just makes you smile. 47. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? If he, if he were true, we would. 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Another emotional argument. What do those stupid people know? They don't know anything. Just name calling when you don't have a good rebuttal. 50 says, and isn't it interesting when he just said that that none of the authorities, none of the Pharisees have believed in him. And then the next verse, verse 50 says, Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus from chapter 3? Nicodemus, who had gone to him before in chapter 3, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? A little bit of, you know, cognitive engagement. He's saying, hey, uh, wait a second. 52, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And I want to say, don't worry. Jesus isn't from Galilee. He's from Bethlehem. More name-calling, more emotionalistic, non-argument arguments. Feast of booths is the feast of feasts. And that great feast does not meet Jesus, the frustrated one. No, things are circumstantially going worse than ever. And Jesus walks right into it with boldness and confidence because everything is actually going to plan according to that coming hour for him. And not only that, it's not oil and water. I want to say it's actually water and water. Because that feast, that festival, which was such a big deal about harvest and abundance and water, actually is the perfect fit for Jesus so he could step up and say, if you believe in me, the streams of living water are in you. You have the Spirit. What looks like a disaster is actually an opportunity for us to see fulfillment. It's awesome. See, that's why I had to do the whole thing, so... Let's pray fast. (laughs) Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for this great chapter. Uh, I confess that I've read it so many times and have not thought it was a very great chapter. Um, Thank you that it really is because Jesus is a great Savior. And we are seeing today how easy it is to be spiritually blind. Um, The only reason we can see things is because your Spirit has worked and we're grateful. We are burdened for those around us who who don't see... um, Jesus as the one who brings fulfillment. Jesus is the one who brings eternal life as symbolized by these flowing waters of the Spirit. Encourage us this week as we live our lives for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.